Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink and this is the Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the fifth edition of the Bookseller Podcast. The Bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858, reporting on everything from the publication of The Mill on the Floss to the news this week that Pinch of Nom is the fastest selling non-fiction title of all time. The bookseller also runs the annual British Book Awards, which is like the BAFTAs for books. In this edition, we're talking to Damien Barr about his first novel, You Will Be Safe Here, to Philip Jones about the recently announced Nibby's shortlists, and to Tom Tivenon, who'll be taking us through the big books of April. And we'll play out with an audiobook extract from The Confessions of Franny Langton, written and read by Sarah Collins. My trial starts the way my life did, a squall of elbows and shoving and spit. And we'll be talking to this month's book doctors about which books they'd choose for our patients, eager readers who want to know what to pick up next. First, let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. We've got Philip Jones and Tom Tivnan. Hello. Hi, Cathy. And with me, as he is every month, is the bookseller's chief exec, Nigel Roby. Hiya. Tom, welcome. Um, thanks for coming in. What are the big books coming out in April? Well, in fiction, we have uh, The Language of Birds by Jill Dawson, which is really interesting. Jill Dawson's written 10 books, novels thus far. Um, her last one was about Patricia Highsmith, the crime writer, a novelization of her life. And this one also takes crime, a real life crime, uh, and brings it to the fore. It's about a novelization of the Lord Lucan murder. What's really interesting about it, I think, is it puts the onus squarely on the victim, which I think has been lost in the whole Lord Lucan thing and probably lost in our culture, how we fetishize true crime with the many podcasts we listen to about it. But her creation, Mandy River, which is her version of Sandra Rivas, who is the nanny that Lord Lucan may or may not have killed. Mandy River is an amazing character, um, really warm, really exciting and you kind of empathise with her immediately. It's a really great book. And Jill Dawson is such a strong writer. I haven't read this one yet, but I loved The Crime Writer. And actually, my favourite novel of hers is called Watch Me Disappear. And there's a bit in it about seahorses, which I've never forgotten. It remains imprinted on my brain. Um, I think as well, you're a big fan of The Parisian by Isabella Hamad. You interviewed her in the magazine, I thought, very excellently. I enjoyed reading it. Tell us about that book. Yeah, well, first of all, she's 27 very talented and quite attractive. So, you know, you hate her initially. <laughs> um, well, I do anyway for jealousy. Um, but it's a really interesting book. It, it's a really fat doorstop of a novel, quite like a 19th century novel, really old fashioned. It's this sweeping grand story that spans continents and generations. It's kind of loosely based on her own grandfather called Mithat, who was a Palestinian who in the early part of the 20th century went to France to study medicine, then went back to the West Bank and got involved in the um, difficulties around the Palestinian mandate between the wars and after the war. It's really touching, really moving, and it tells a story, I think gives a dignity to a certain people that we've kind of glossed over recently. And that's what the best fiction does, actually, isn't it? Give a voice to people who haven't been heard. The book I adored from this month is called The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins and it is about uh, Franny 
has been on a plantation. Her name is the name of the man who owned her. He taught her to read and write for his own murky purposes and then brought her to London, gave her as a gift to some of his friends. And then when those friends ended up dead, Franny ends up on trial for it. It's a, it's just a wonderful uh, novel, so resonant, such a page turner. And again, that really powerful sense when you're reading it, that this author has reached into the past to give a voice to someone who wouldn't have had it at the time and deserves to be able to speak now. Um, just loved it. Can't recommend it highly enough. Anyway, let's move on to nonfiction. What's happening in nonfiction this month? Well, my favourite book in nonfiction is Black Listed, like Black Comma Listed, by Jeffrey Boache. Um, it's a series of essays by him about the black male experience in current Britain, um, which sounds, when I say that, right, like they're very worthy, um, but it's not. It's one of the funniest, freshest books I've ever read about, well, about young men and masculinity. But it's also quite jarring to squishy liberals, white liberals like myself. Um, There's a bit about racial slurs and what they mean to black people, and it really gets up in your face. But it does so with such humor. Uh, Jeffrey Boache wrote a really good book about grime, uh, the history of grime, which I recommend everyone to get. And he's young and attractive too, isn't he, Tom? He is very young (laughs) and very attractive, and I hate him for that. (laughs) We interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. My colleague Caroline Sanderson interviewed him, put him on the front cover of the bookseller and... uh, yeah, it's just amazing. I feel I should point out Tom's very attractive as well. Although he is a squishy <laughs> liberal. Yeah, let's not forget. Um, and also in nonfiction is a book that I've just reviewed for The Times, which I thought was very strong, which is What Dementia Teaches Us About Love by Nikki Gerard. Her father had dementia and then died, so she writes about that. But she also, uh, she began to campaign for more compassionate hospital care after his death, and she interviews other people. And it's a very interesting, moving, eye-opening read. And in the end, I think, sort of broadly optimistic. I think she tackles it very straight on about the whole issue. Uh, My dad had Alzheimer's, and it's a tough thing to live through, but uh, many of us will have a family member that goes through that. Um, because we're living longer and it's a really important book I think Mm -hmm. and I think I mean she tries really hard I think to I think you could write it in a sensationalist horror story way but she tries very hard to be even-handed in her sort of examinations of the subject did you give her a good review I did give her a very good good. review I think yes (laughs) Um. (laughs) Um, children's pog tell us about pog pog is by Podrick Kenny um who last year had his debut um, book called Tin, which is a sort of, as we say in the trade, middle grade book, uh, which means roughly from ages five to 12. That was a sort of sci-fi adventure. This is a sort of fantasy adventure with the titular Pog Lumpkin, which is a great surname. Um, He's a little hairy sort of fellow magical thing, and he helps these two children who live in a, a new house in the woods and he kind of helps save them from these monsters who keep coming through the magical realm to the real world. It's really funny, really scary at parts, so well-written, so sprightly written. Uh, I think he's a superstar in the making. Lovely. And uh, there's a children's book that has a 50th anniversary edition now, isn't there? Tell us what that is. That is A Very Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Carle, um, which I'm sure we all love. And It's 50 years since he's wrote it, obviously. Uh, the afterward to this special anniversary edition is written by Dolly Parton, 
Dolly uh, Parton. That's so cool. (laughs) Which which sounds really random, but Dolly Parton, people don't know that she um, has this uh, charity which gives free books to children in both the US Uh, and the UK. She does huge work with literacy for young children. I looked on the website today and they've donated 116 million books to kids. That's Um, amazing. But it's really an amazing book that can last 50 years and it still sells. This is a bit of book charts geekery, but The Very Hungry Caterpillar is one of just two books that have been in the top 5,000 charts since records began. What's the other one, Tom? I was going to ask you. Can you name it? Is it We're All Going on a Bear Hunt? Oh, Philip, very good. That's excellent. Thanks ever so much, Tom. Thank you. Um, Philip, welcome, and thank you for leading us into you so well. You're the editor of the bookseller. It's your first time on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about what your job entails. So we have a weekly magazine. So uh, my job at its very basic principles involves getting that magazine out the door every week. But we also have a very lively website and a news email that goes out every morning, sometimes twice a day. Uh, So I'm kind of overseeing all that. I chair the British Book Awards, including the books bit, which we're going to talk about today. And, you know, I look after all the editorial output across the magazines and the website, including our very good book fair dailies that Tom edits. We'll Round of applause for Tom. From yeah. Bologna. But my, in my office, I think they think I just gather around, <laughs> going from lunch to lunch, <laughs> getting slowly drunker as the day wears on. Do that too, of course. It's not true that there's no boozy lunches left in publishing then? No, uh, rather You've too many, I think. <laughs> So tell us about the Nibbies, the British Book Awards. So the British Book Awards have been around in various guises since 1990. Oh, by the way, Nigel is staring at me, so he will correct me <laughs> if I get anything wrong at this point. Um, I'm rubbish on quiz questions, don't I? And it celebrates the trade in all of its various kind of guises, including uh, awards such as Book Retailer of the Year, Independent Bookshop of the Year, Publisher of the Year, Literary Agent of the Year. I could go on. There are quite a few awards that we hand out on the night. There are other awards that we now hand out separately, including Export Book Publisher of the Year. And we also now have the Books of the Year, which I'm here to talk to you about. And that, I mean, that all sounds like a lot of uh, a lot of work, lots of judges, lots of shortlists. And the shortlists have just been announced, I think. Is that where you're at? That's where we're at. In fact, they were announced last week. And we produced a shortlist supplement in the magazine that came out last Friday. Uh, always much excitement in the trade and on social media when the shortlists are announced because they really do mean something to uh, the authors and publishers and booksellers who are shortlisted. And it's uh, actually one of the nicer things I that I get to do is sift through the more than 500 submissions that we get each year for these awards and sift them down to the about 150 uh, shortlisted companies, people and books. It's a lot of work, but it's um, it's hugely fun. And it's a great insight into what's really happening when you lift the hood of the uh, book business. I was just going to say, just for clarification, it's not just Philip doing all <laughs> 500. There are about oh, there's loads of judges. How many judges you've got, Philip? Yes, yeah, so there's various sort of um, stages of the judging process. So we have internal judges, that are our book previewers, as you were once one, Cathy. Uh, so we sift through the submissions at an early stage in order to get to a long list, or in the book's case, a short list. We then um, have... 50-odd external judges, which meet uh, over various occasions, where we take the shortlist and then come up with uh, the winning book or the winning publisher. It's a big old process involving lots and lots of people who put a lot of effort and thought into it, and uh, 
I'm all greatly appreciative of their hard work. So when the uh, when the shortlist supplement arrived in the in my pack, the bookseller that does every Friday at my house in Cornwall, the page I most enjoyed reading, I must say, is Independent Bookshop of the Year because that's just so nice. So maybe can we quickly mention a couple of those? Yes, well, actually, Tom shortlists that. So why don't we move back to Tom for this because he's uh, he's across those bookshops like like nobody else. We should back up and say that shortlistings. A lot of people say on the night, well, everyone's a winner, and you don't really mean it because there, there truly is one winner and everyone else on the short list loses. However, <laughs> uh, the indie bookshops of the year are all winners because they're all regional winners. We've had shortlists within these regions, um, and I should say countries as well, because it encapsulates Ireland as well. And Scotland. And Scotland and Wales. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're not going to get anything wrong here. No, no, no. <laughs> but it's a really interesting list in that we have a kind of nice mix of shops that have been around for ages and have really recently been upping their game and doing the things that you need to do to be effective when you're competing against Amazon and Waterstones and WH Smith. One shop, Seven Oaks in Seven Oaks, um, as you might imagine, <laughs> uh, has been around for 70 years. Uh, the Newham Bookshop has been around for 40 years. That's in East London. Um, and Gulliver's, which is that down your way, Kathy? It's um, in Wimborne the- Minster. Yes. Well, it's in the southwest, but yeah, the southwest yeah. is really big. Yeah, yeah. So. so that's been around for 50 years. But conversely, we have a lot of shops that have been uh, just new to the industry, like Niche Comics, which is our first ever comic shop that has won a region, um, which was uh, founded two years ago by these two brothers who um, I think they're both still in their 20s who wanted a comic shop in their town. It's amazing stuff. And um, it's nice. I look at it and look at all the ones I've been to. So Bookish in Crickowl mm. and Drake the Bookshop in Stockton on Tees. Very fond memories of those two. And Golden Hair Books in Edinburgh. But the place I haven't been, that having read this, I just desperately want to go there right now, is Charlie Burns Bookshop <laughs> in Galway. Yeah. Um, it says, it's labyrinthine rooms with a huge range are at the heart of Galway's cultural community. And the shop hosts seven book clubs and numerous readings, launches and story time sessions. And I, that sort of slightly makes me want to move to Galway. Yeah. <laughs> and what's great about this is you really get to see the improvement and the improving business that all these shops um, have been doing from the old ones to the new ones. Because I think when we started looking at these, what, maybe 10 years ago, it was hard to imagine that an independent bookshop of the year award would still be thriving 10 years hence. And um, not only is it thriving, but there's more of them and they're getting better and better and doing more and more mm-hmm. business. And yeah. it's, it's quite incredible. And it's a joy, really, to see how hard they work on behalf of publishers and authors. Mm. And then the books categories. So fiction, there's debut, there's crime and thriller, audio book, children's fiction, children's illustrated nonfiction, and then nonfiction lifestyle and narrative. So there'll be an individual winner for all those categories and then an overall winner, is that right? That's right. So there's 42 books and six audiobooks and then we select a winner in each of those areas. So there's a winner for fiction, winner for uh, debut, winner for non-fiction narrative and then they all go on to compete for the overall book of the year. And that's announced at the awards ceremony? These are all announced at the awards ceremony. At the beginning of the awards ceremony, so look out early (laughs) on the evening on social media for the, the celebrations and the winner's... Uh, weeping for joy and that will be on the 13th of may i think it's quite exciting the way that the category winners are announced and the final one so at the beginning of the evening you will be one of 42 people is that right yes if I've um, just done the maybe more than 42 because it's an award not just for the author but also for the 
publisher, the illustrator, and in the case of audio, the narrator, and in the case of one of the titles, the um, translator. Mm, very good. So there's all these people that are in the cauldron yes. at the beginning of the evening. Only one can end up with the final crowd. You're making it sound like some sort of Hunger Games <laughs> thing here. <laughs> Injecting Just a bit slap. of excitement yeah. and drama. In which case, my money is on Aunt Middleton, who, who was in the special boat service. So <laughs> I, I, he, he will definitely emerge from the mosh pit unscathed. <laughs> and give us a sense of what the evening itself is like. So it's at the Grosvenor House Hotel. Yeah. I will say with complete objectivity, it is the second best evening in the book business. The best being the Man Booker Prize. Sorry, Nigel. Uh, That's so disappointing. British Book Awards is a very narrow second. And everyone dresses up in their frocks and their their DJs. And, you know, we drink champagne. It's everything you think the book business is, which actually (laughs) isn't, except on these rare occasions when we all get together to celebrate uh, our successes. And the best thing about the Books of the Year shortlist is it's not like other prizes where you might pick an up a book out of obscurity that's sold very little copies and you elevate it and you award it a prize as with the Man Booker and Milkman uh, Anna Burns book. Um, these are books that have already been successful in the market. They've already made a dent commercially and, and these are all loved by, by readers. So we're celebrating that success along with the quality of the, the writing and the, the narration or the translation or the publication. So in a sense, as with the indies, everybody who's on the shortlist is already a winner because they've done so well already. That's brilliant. Well, maybe you'll come back and um, tell us more about it after the winner has been announced. Be delighted to. Thank you very much. So if you want to know more about those books, you can go to thebookseller.com forward slash awards and you can see all the books that have been shortlisted in all the categories. And on the night, if you're on Twitter and you follow hashtag Nibbies, uh, then you can see who's winning as it, uh, as it unfolds on the night. And now it's time to talk to Damien Barr. Damien is a writer and a journalist whose 2013 memoir, Maggie and Me, made me laugh, cry and fall irrevocably in love with him. (laughs) He does all sorts of interesting things in Bookworld, including hosting his wonderful salon, now based at the Savoy. But today he's here to talk to us about his new novel, his first novel, You Will Be Safe Here. Damien, welcome. Thank you, Cathy. Maggie and Me was such a huge success. I wonder... Was it a struggle to work out what on earth to write next? Yes, this sort of difficult second album (laughs) syndrome. Um, I wasn't looking to write a novel and I wasn't also looking to write another memoir. I was just sort of still reeling from Maggie and me really because it took so much to write. I think you know this, having written a memoir, it's not just the writing of it, it's the going out and talking about it and sort of feeling incredibly vulnerable but also incredibly loved. It's just a lot Mm. when you do a memoir and I wanted some time out, I think, afterwards. And I did only do a one-book deal with Bloomsbury, so I wasn't under any pressure to produce another book. But um, I came across a story, a newspaper story, in real life, which kept nagging at me and which I couldn't stop thinking about and couldn't stop following online. And it was a story that we'll come and talk about, a boy who'd been murdered in South Africa. And that real-life story is what led me to writing fiction. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to write a novel, you know, I'm looking for an idea or anything like that. It was just a story which became something much bigger. And it became that because I couldn't answer all the questions. Mm -hmm. As a journalist, you know, I'm trained to do the whys and the wheres and the whos and all of that. But actually with a story, I I couldn't find an answer um, or at least not one that was trustworthy and certainly not also in the present. So I had to go back in time, back in history. But yeah, it was not clear to me that I was writing a novel until I was about a year into it. And I was like, <laughs> I think I'm writing a novel. Yeah. Oh, 
So tell us a bit more about the story. Well, the story is that I was looking online. It's where I first saw the story of Raymond Boyd, who was a boy who'd been murdered in South Africa. He'd been sent by his mum and her boyfriend to a camp. And the slogan of this place was, we make men out of boys, which is just incredibly sinister. Um, very tough place run by soldiers. This boy, Raymond Boyce, didn't fit in. Um, there was a discussion about whether he was gay or not. Um, he certainly didn't fit the very narrow idea of what it is to be a boy in Africana mm. culture. And he was murdered at this, this camp. He was tortured and killed, as were two other boys in, in the past years, I discovered. And I got to thinking, why do these places exist in South Africa? This, there's a network of these camps. Why do they exist here? And the answer I found back in 1900, which is during the Boer War, which we don't get taught in school anymore, here or there, which we've sort of forgotten about. Um, and we now think of it as being quite jolly, if we think of it at all, as Victorian adventure. But the fact is the Boer War was brutal and horrific, and it's where the British invented the concentration camp. So in South Africa, there is a memory of these camps, these places, and a determination to stop it again. So it's a great irony that, um, you know, more women and children, by the way, died in these camps in 1900 than soldiers died in the war. So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a great trauma for this nation. In order to stop that happening again, they've created these new camps uh, to train boys to be soldiers. Um, so there's a sort of historical pattern that's repeating itself. And I wanted to write a book which showed that big sweep of history, but from a very human level, from the level of Sarah and her son Fred and from the boy Willem in the contemporary story to really sort of humanise it. Because I think war is just such a big, you know, it's like global warming. It's like, you know, something we can't quite get our heads around. And I wanted to make it smaller and more human scale. So how am I going to get water today? Mm-hmm. You know, is my son well? What would I do to keep my son alive? These questions. So that's what I wanted to do to kind of make it human scale. Um, I was really looking forward to reading your novel because it's you and I would read a novel <laughs> about anything you wrote. But I must say, I was sort of surprised at how personally drawn into it I was because in the historic section, I really identified with Sarah trying to keep her six-year-old son mm. safe my son is nine Mm. and then of course Willem is quite like my son in some ways you know quirky boys don't always fit in Mm -hmm. is there or is there not something wrong with them are they or are they not too old to still be very into their cuddly toys Um, and I think it's the power of the book really that before I knew where I was I I sort of would have thought like oh South Africa don't know much about that but I was sort of drawn into the story because of wanting to read your book and then completely identified with it all the way through. Thank Um, you. I've overwhelmed myself. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's hard, though. I think for hearing you talk about it as a mother and, you know, I don't have children, but I was that boy. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's been a really interesting hearing from mothers and fathers about their reactions to these stories because people we are worried about our children and where they fit in the world and will they find their place and will they be okay and in actual fact the reason that these parents send their sons to these places is they want them to be okay they're not doing it to torture them they're not doing it because they're bad parents they're doing it because they want their boys to be all right in a world that's very tough and in actual fact it's a cruel irony that the very doing of that is what's the undoing of some of these boys. They don't make men out of boys, they make corpses mm-hmm. out of boys. And I can see how emotionally direct that is for you. And it was it was that way for me. I'm so attached to all of those characters and 
I think the difference between writing memoir and writing fiction became so clear to me with them because I, I felt like I held their lives in my hand mm-hmm. and I had to take care of them. But at the same time, there were terrible things that were going to happen that I couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. And that's not how I thought writing fiction would feel. Because I felt that way about memoir. I, I couldn't change what had happened in my life when I wrote Maggie and Me. I had to be honest about what had happened, even when it made me look bad. I had to tell the truth. So I was reaching out to events that I knew existed, you know, pulling them off the shelf. But with this, I was making things happen. But in a sense, they already felt predestined once the characters became real. Um, At the start, I could make them do anything. But once they became real people, I knew where they were going. And that was really hard. I did find the boys uh, very convincing. And I think in Maggie and me as well, your child voice just utterly convinces and one of the reasons I think I enjoy your company is I always feel the boy is strong in you. <laughs> I am childish. <laughs> you're allowed to just you're allowed to just say that. Um, I feel a really strong connection, and you're right. It's been said of me before, and I don't take it as an insult at all. I feel that part of me is very much alive, and in a strange way, as I get older, I think because I had to grow up so early. And because as a young boy, I had to take so much. You know, I was paying the gas bill at 10. I was mm-hmm. making sure that my parents didn't turn up to parents' night when I was 11 and, you know, stopping people, killing one another in the house. Truly. I think in a strange way, I have had a sort of deferred boyhood mm-hmm. in a way. And as I get older and more responsible and safer, I feel quite happy to do those mm-hmm. things that I maybe didn't get to do as a boy. I think it's about allowing yourself to be playful. And as men, we are not allowed that. This book really in many ways is about exploding that idea of toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. which is harmful to women, and we see that in the story, but it's also harmful to men. And I really want to show with the character of the general, you know, who's this racist bigot, this kind of monstrous man in the book who tortures Willem and these other boys, but also to show his humanity and to show how he actually didn't need to be that way. He could be different. He could be a good man, but instead he's a bad man or a man who does bad things. And I want us to think about how it is that men get like that. Not excuse them, explain. No, it's a hard time to be a man, isn't it? Yeah, I think that it is. For all sorts of reasons. I always think it's a hard time to be a woman. Mm. Um, I think it always has been. But what I wanted to show is how that's changing for men mm-hmm. um, and how it's maybe not changing quickly enough in South Africa. You know, I was really shocked when I went there at how familiar that toxic mask culture was from growing up in the west of Scotland in the 1980s. Yeah. It was like, wow, we're quite far behind here mm-hmm. in lots of ways. And yet in other ways, much further ahead. South Africa was the first country in the world to put LGBT equality in the constitution. You know, it's the first country in the world to enshrine equal rights for queer people. So there's this great tension in that country between a push for equality and a drive for fairness and social justice and this history which is sort of holding people back and part of the reason for writing it was that I think you really cannot heal the present if you don't hear the past Mm -hmm. and this is a story that hasn't been told this Mm -hmm. is a hidden history I didn't know about this until I started researching it I knew nothing until I started researching it and I want people to know what happened there and what we did And it's another huge societal challenge, isn't it? How we hear and then heal the past in some way. Not that we maybe have answers to it necessarily, but it's just a 
It's massive about, question for our time. It's about bearing witness. Sarah Perry writes about this year and talks about this year well in the connection with Melmoth. It's about bearing witness, not closing your eyes to it, not switching the channel, not turning away. You know, it's about exposing yourself and allowing yourself to sit with that pain. I had a therapist who always used to say, you know, I'd be sort of sitting there in tears and she'd say to me, it's huge and it's real. And I was like, yes, it is. It's huge and it's real. The pain is huge and real. But actually, it's very easy to anaesthetise yourself by going on Twitter or taking drugs or having sex or doing whatever it is that you want to do. But in actual fact, I think the greatest, the bravest thing, the most profoundly confronting thing that we can do is to bear witness to the suffering of other people. And in doing so, we are transformed as individuals. We are transformed. Um, it was interesting, Philippa Perry said to me about this book, and obviously she's a therapist and, and a wonderful writer. And Philippa said that, you know, this book broke her heart, she said, but it put her heart back together again mm-hmm. and that it was different, mm-hmm. it was stronger. And I thought that was a really powerful thought. Philippa Perry is a good and wise woman and her book is amazing and I think she's spot on about... Your book, it is heartbreaking. There are very difficult things in it, but you do finish it feeling somewhat transformed by the experience. Was that in your mind? Is that how you wanted the reader to feel when they finished the book? The ending is something that I spent a lot of time thinking about um, because I didn't know how it was going to end when I started writing it and I changed my mind about it several times and now I think it's the right ending. I mean, I'm a bit rubbish if it isn't because it's out now, but <laughs> um, but I think you know there are all sorts of ways that book could have ended, um, but actually it had to end this way. And of course, the book goes on. The yeah. characters go on. I still think about them. Mm-hmm. Their lives exist and it's really interesting now to me hearing people talking about them and imagining, you know, because I've left a lot of space in the book. It's not a book with everything wrapped up in a bow. There is space in this book for you to think, did that happen that way or did this happen this way? You know, do I think this about that person? Do I think that about this person? You know, there is space for the reader. I think it's in those spaces that readers find their own meaning and those grey areas. And I, so I've left a couple of those and that's where the most interesting conversations about this book will happen. Mm-hmm. And will you, you are about to talk about this book extensively over the yeah. next few months. Do you enjoy that? I love it. I absolutely love it. I think it was Johnson who said a writer starts the book and a reader finishes it. Mm-hmm. And I love engaging with readers and hearing their stories. And I think this is a really interesting one because even already I've had people reach out to me and say, oh my God, my great-grandfather was in one of these camps and I didn't know it. I had one woman get in touch with me and say, my great-grandfather was a doctor, a British doctor in one of these camps and was probably a baddie in your book. You know, by telling this very specific story, you tap into universal feelings that people have and that's true, but also these very specific stories that are coming out about this history that we don't know about partly because we're ashamed. Mm. Um, and it's also this women and children, they're historically, they're the victims, you know, yeah, they're all dead, they're nobody's really interested in what happens we're interested in the soldiers the heroes the generals you know um i want to tell the stories of those forgotten women and children and in the present day i want to talk about these boys who are being sent to these places still because they're still open and you know if one parent reads the book or talks you know hears me talking about the book and decides to do something different then then it will all have been worthwhile but i do love those conversations um so long as people aren't telling me I've got things wrong, <laughs> which is, there's always somebody who'll come up to you on a book tour and go, well, you know, usually it's about a train or a car or something. And they'll say, that train, that model of train didn't exist in 1900. And so, so I'm sure I've probably got something like that wrong. But, um, but other than that, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, very much. Well, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you ever so much for coming to talk to us today. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you, Cathy.
That was such a pleasure to talk to Damien Barr. He truly is a force for good in the world. Now, on to other forces of good, I'm going to hand you over to Nigel to quiz the book doctors. Thanks, Cathy. Our two indies are from opposite sides of the country. What unites them is that they've both been fated by the British Book Awards. The Book Hive in Norwich was the winner of the East of England Award last year, and Booker in Oswestry was National Independent Bookshop of the Year in 2015. So it's a warm hello and welcome to Carrie Morris from Booker and Henry Lake from the Book Hive. Glad you can join us. Hello. Hello. Now, uh, for new listeners to the Bookseller podcast, we're asking these two for recommendations for readers who are on the hunt for their next favourite book. They might be after a literary heavyweight or a sporting biography. We'll find out in a minute. But before we talk about books, let's talk about bookshops. Carrie, uh, Booker hosts some fantastic authors, Victoria Hislop, Kirsty Walk, John Lewis Stemple. What sort of bookshop are readers going to find if they head to Oswestry Street to track you down? They might not even know where Oswestry Street is. Well, Oswestry Street is a lovely market town on the border of England and Wales. And I think hopefully what they will find as they come through our doors is just a, a really lovely welcome and a place that celebrates books. And we're very much focusing on the shopping experience, the physicality of the book and the space that we are in. So... Hopefully, as they walk through the doors, the opportunity to browse and find things that they didn't know they want is what will hit them in the face. <laughs> I'm not sure you should be hitting customers no. in the face, but I know what you mean. <laughs> exactly. um, and and Oswestry itself, an old town, I should know it. My parents live fairly nearby in Church Stretton, but uh, I don't know Oswestry. I mean, it is an ancient market town. Um, it has a very interesting history. It got its name from the battle between King Pender and King Oswald. And when Oswald was defeated, his body was hung, drawn and quartered on a tree. Oh, nice. Oswald's tree became Oswestry. Ah, oh, little history lesson, isn't that good? And Henry, I haven't been to Norwich for an age, an ancient city. Uh, Coleman's Mustard and Delia Smith and, and the Book Hive, of course. Yes. Well, Coleman's Mustard famously has been bought by someone in Burton, and it may be becoming Coleman's of Burton, but we're all objecting to that a lot. But Delia's still here, <laughs> uh, and so are we. Yeah, actually, it was it was lovely hearing Carrie say that because they are the, exactly the same sort of words that I would use to describe our shop, which is kind of what I suppose we all want Indies to be, the kind of place that you want to be in just because you want to be in it. And uh, hopefully whilst you're there, you will find something you didn't know you wanted. I think that's that's what it's all about, yeah. So that whole serendipity thing. Exactly, exactly. And also making it a place, you know, Norwich doesn't have any uh, big industry anymore. It never really did, but it, it's a lovely, lovely town to shop in with lots and lots of independence. So people come to uh, a city like this. I mean, it's obviously got its big writing pedigree with the UEA Creative Writing Course and the National Centre for Writings here. And if you throw a stone, you'll hit 15 writers with it probably. But the uh, atmosphere of just hanging around in small shops in medieval towns is, uh, is a pretty cool thing to do just in itself, really. Well, that's what we can all do for the weekend then. Yeah, quite. Off to an ancient town. So now we know where you are, let's um, have a go at picking some books for our readers. So uh, here's the first one. So this is Joe. Uh, he's from Cornwall. He's a student. The last book he read was The Poppy War by R.F. Quang, fantasy based on ancient Chinese history. And he reads a lot of fantasy books. And what he's looking for, funnily enough, it's sort of fantasy, I suppose, but a really good ghost story. He hasn't read anything exceptional since The Woman in Black. And he, he wants to be scared. Oh, dear. Carrie, what are you going to scare him with? So I have selected a book that I read a couple of years ago and it still haunts me, although it's not a ghost story. It's See What I Have Done by Sarah Schmidt. 
and it's a fictionalized retelling of one of America's most notorious murder cases from the 19th century. And I don't know whether you remember the skipping rhyme, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 whacks. Oh, yeah. So that is the skipping rhyme that came from the notorious murder case. It is one of the most unnerving books that I've read. And there's a real sense of menace and horror from the outset. And it's narrated through four different voices. So Lizzie, who is the youngest daughter and the perpetrator of the murders, um, Emma, her older sister, Bridget the maid and Benjamin who is a visitor and stranger to the house and I think the thing about the book that is so compelling is that it's clear what has happened and how it's happened it's the why that the reader wants to know I just found it very powerful as a reader you become a voyeur and there's this feverish and oppressive sort of narrative which makes it impossible to look away so it will definitely make the hairs on the back of Joe's neck stand on end. Oh, God. Is it a new book? How did you come across it? It's been out for a couple of years, and we just ordered it in as a new title. It's a very creepy story as to how the author actually came to write the book. She was in the bookshop, and it was towards the end of the day, and a little booklet fell out from the shelf onto the floor, and it was about the Lizzie Borden murders. And she sort of took that away and read it and just decided that she had to find out more about it. So she went and stayed in the house, which is now a B&B, and all of these sort of creepy, spooky things conspired to making her realise that she'd got to write this story as a, a fictionalised account of it. Whoa. <laughs> I don't care whether that's a true story or not. That's a really good story. <laughs> it is really good. Henry, are you going to out-creep that? No, do you know what? I'm going to go completely the opposite way because it was strange when I was reading this. I was thinking, oh, well, I haven't really read ghost stories, per se, or horror stories for a long time. I tend to avoid them, which is probably a bit silly. And I was thinking about what I've read recently, and this is going to sound almost like a bit of a cop-out because it's so new that literally we're all talking about it at the moment. But I thought I happened to see him doing a talk last night as well, and I... I was thinking about Lanny, you know, oh, Max yeah, Porter's yeah. new book. Now, That's Max Porter, yeah? Max Porter, yeah, the new one, which is only just out. Now, for those of you who haven't read it yet, I urge you to read it anyway, but particularly for Joe, because I was trying to think about the elements of what scares you. Now, in ghost stories, there is the kind of blood-curdling, you know, what have you, but the suspense and the tension and the not knowing, the terror of the unsaid, that is not what is going on in Lanny, but it is there. And it's there with this presence of the mythical, this extraordinary character, this voice of dead Papa Toothwort that is almost like the spiritual personification of the land of this village, this unnamed village in um, in England. And it's sort of set contemporarily, but with this strange boy called Lanny of the title and his relationship with his parents and, and uh, one particular other man in the village. And then... I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that he goes, Lanny goes. And as we have got to know this character of this voice of dead Papa Toothwort, who is this extraordinary voyeur who is literally seeping throughout the bricks and mortar of the village and the water in people's taps and the uh, almost the blood in their veins as he talks about gaining his prize. And we don't really know anything. And it is both beautiful and mystical and almost sort of born from the um, Albion myth, uh, but at the same time is about 
people and their relationships and indeed the relationships between fighting neighbours. And it doesn't quite meet the uh, criteria of a ghost story, but nonetheless, I think it has the qualities that uh, that make that so attractive. I think that's a superb exploration of it as well. I, it had been on my kind of, ooh, you know, I think I might get that, so I shall definitely go out and yes, get that now. So let's move on now from Cornwall to Devon. Uh, and Michael, who's a teacher, he's just finished A Monster Calls by Siobhan O'Down and Patrick Ness, which made him cry. Sorry about that. And he bought a copy for his mum. So uh, well done, Michael. And his type of book tends to be books about human emotion. A Kite Runner is one of his favourites. Whether you can do this or not, I, I don't know. But he's got synesthesia. Uh, so he sees sounds as colours. Uh, anything that uh, touches on that and representations of it in literature, that might be a tall order. But, um, but who knows? Carrie, what do you think? Well, interestingly, um, the book that I chose uh, to recommend is Lanny by Max Porter. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was thinking it's a different way of experiencing a story. And in simple terms, as Henry has already said, it's a story of a village and the disappearance of a child. The reason I selected it is because it's incredibly lyrical and musical. And it's that sort of cacophony of voices from the village that sort of overlap intermingle interrupt that sort of really engage the reader and and sort of provide a the backdrop to a very sort of fragmented storyline and it's the sort of the soundscape that propels the narrative forward and and I was just focusing in on sound and how that would kind of impact on Michael as the reader so I thought that Lanny who is this shining light of goodness within his family and within the village. You know, he's a child that is full of imagination, curiosity and sort of promise and sort of stands out from all of the others. And he sings, he collects, creates and sort of immerses himself in the natural surroundings. And it's that innocence and that sort of sense of adventure that results in his sort of disappearance Um, and it's certainly been one of my favorite reads of the year so far and I love the way that Max Porter plays with form and the words and phrases swirl over the page so as well as being you know it's it's a very sort of visual uh, read as well as a very sensory read I think. Well we've had duplicates before but not for different people for different reasons Mm -hmm. but (laughs) I think last month on the podcast we ended up having um, Tessa Hadley month, where everything seemed to come down to a, a recommendation. So I think we're going for a Lammy month this month. So yeah. um, Well, that's no bad thing. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> is it? No. So, Henry? Yeah, Carrie, that's brilliant, by the way. I think that's such a good interpretation of this really quite difficult request. We were saying in the shop today, God, it is really difficult, this. Well, actually, what you do quite a lot of the time with the booksellers is that people come in and they say something like that, and really you just steer them completely in the opposite direction. I've done that a bit here, picking up the phrase he used at some point, that he was interested in books about human emotion, which is where he mentioned The Kite Runner, and also the fact that he is in Devon. And it made me think of uh, one of my favourite authors, who's Tim Pears, who I've, for years, called Tim Pears, but actually it turns out he's called Tim Pears, I only discovered recently. He wrote a book called In the Place of Fallen Leaves, and it's set in Devon, in a tiny little village, and it's about a girl becoming a woman, almost, leaving her childhood years in the midst of this sweltering, sweltering hot summer and in the rural community that she lives within and her family and the farmers and the people around her. And it is just, it it is the most glorious, beautiful piece of writing. And it is about that emotional connection between people and as you begin to realise 
that the world is a different place that you, you always thought it was. And I want to mention it particularly because anyone who has missed out on this book, which I've been forcing into people's hands for years, should absolutely love it and then should try Tim's new trilogy. The last one came out uh, earlier this year uh, because it's absolutely brilliant and he's a writer who I think everyone should know. Well, funnily enough, I was particularly taken because the trilogy is the, the West Country trilogy, isn't it? The, That's right. The, yeah. And I was just browsing in a bookshop uh, a couple of weeks ago and saw the first book in the series. I can't remember the name of the... the Horseman. Horseman, sounds familiar, yeah. Um, and I thought it sounded absolutely amazing. But I wasn't sure about the trilogy, whether I committed to buying all three in one go or whether I should just start off with one of them. Well, I would say that it makes no difference because you're going to end up buying all three okay. once you bought the first yeah. one anyway, so you, you could. But I would also say, you know, that, that this place, in, uh, this, sorry, this book, In the Place of Fallen Leaves, is well, well worth searching out as well. It's a much older book, but it's available now. They're all back in print, so... That was my recommendation. Oh, that's a good one. So Tim Piers, and it's Piers, not Pears. And, right, we're going up to the north of the country now to Esther from Cleethorpe. She's mum, and the last book she read was You Left Early by Louisa Young, which she found really, really good. And she's reading a lot of memoirs at the moment, and family memoirs and how people get over, or they don't, uh, what happens to them. It's, that's what she's interested in. So... We're going up to you, Carrie and Booker, aren't we? We are indeed, yes. Um, the book that I have selected to recommend is Heartburn by Nora Ephron, which actually is not a memoir, but it is an autobiographical novel and it's based in the disintegration of a marriage. So the main character, Rachel, discovers when she's seven months pregnant that her husband is having an affair. But throughout the story, as well as the sort of the current trauma that she's experiencing, there are references to Rachel's sort of upbringing and her parents. And that all contributes to the texture and backdrop of her, her sort of family situation and, and helps go some way to explain how she manages to pull through the, the grief and trauma of this relationship meltdown. For me, it's sort of Nora Ephron's wry, deadpan humour that makes it tragic, but also bearable. And she does this amazing thing of interspersing a selection of comforting recipes that helps give the protagonist and also the reader some reprieve as this sort of awful situation is unraveling. And I just describe it as a short, sharp novel that sort of shows all of those stages that Rachel endures. So shock, anger, heartache, acceptance, which then finally sort of allows her to move on. And I think it's a book that should be read and reread while sampling all of the recipes. So <laughs> it's a complete emotional roller coaster. Yeah. But it does, it brings comfort and hope out of a sort of awful situation. I do like the sound of that. And not just for the recipes as well. <laughs> um, Henry, what were you going to recommend for Esther? Well, I've got a, actually a couple of suggestions oh, uh, oh. here. And I, because um, the first one I've got is the novel actually. Uh, it came out a couple of, maybe three or four years ago. It's by Benjamin Johncock. It's called The oh, Last Pilot. Yeah. Um, and it's an absolutely wonderful book. It's set in the 40s in the middle of the Mojave Desert and the dry, hot, barren landscape that uh, you associate with that, but also this extraordinary thing that's going on, which is all these US Air Force test pilots who are testing out jet speed planes. And they're living out there in that community and having this extraordinary juxtaposition in their lives in this sort of creeping burning hot slow ground life and then they're up in the air going at supersonic speeds but in the middle of it one of the jet pilots who's there with his family they lose their baby 
and that's halfway through the book and then the rest of the book is about that really but carrying on with his extraordinary um other life of living at mac 2 in the sky while this tragedy is unfolding underneath it's his debut and it's just the writing is superb and it's dry and sparse and it crackles and it's just a really exciting book that's really nice because at the book said we know benjamin a bit i remember when he was first talking about that book as you say it's a couple of years ago now so i mean to hear that sort of coming back as a recommendation from an indie he will be so chuffed with that it's great and it's i don't know how well it did commercially but every single review it got was a kind of five-star standout review and uh, his second book is yet to come, but I know it's in the pipeline, so I hope it's as good as the first, because it is a stunning book. It really is. Everyone should get that. Um, and I wanted to recommend just one other little one, and I'm going to put my hand up and say that I published it, but that's not why I'm mentioning it. It just seemed to fit very well with this. It's a memoir by an artist called Nikki Looted, and the book is called New Year's Day is Black. And it's a painted memoir. It's almost like a scrapbook. It's all paintings and handwritten text over the paintings but she grew up in the sort of bloomsbury set as a child and it was all really really actually appalling being a child in that generation you were there not to be taken any notice of frankly and some horrific things happened to her and yet throughout her life and still to this day she continues to carry on through life with great grace and talent and an admirable way of turning that awful tragedy so many tragedies actually into a really wonderful reassuring reaffirming message about how to live one's life and i think it's a really wonderful piece of work so that will be a non-fiction well those have been absolutely great and one of the things that we like to do before we have to say bye to you is just to get from both of you that kind of one book at the moment where if someone comes into your shop you just don't want them to leave without a copy of it tucked under their arm so carrie what are you going to force upon people whether they like it or not (laughs) well one of the books that is a perennial bestseller for us is deep country by neil ansell and we always have a stack of it on the table and i think you know where we're located it's just the perfect book for us to be putting into people's hands and saying you know you really must read this and it's his memoir of the five years that he spent in the depths of the Welsh countryside with no electricity no running water and it's sort of a quiet book it recounts sort of the day-to-day the passing of the seasons but also Neil himself as he immersed himself and became part of the nature and wildlife surrounding him over those five years and it's just beautifully written and it's a book to go back to as well to sort of have and sit and meditate over it it's just stunning and we we love it i think that's a perfect bit and i like neil's work he's also written i think it's deer island uh, about his time on jura yeah uh, yep. and, I think and the, the last wilderness. the last wilderness where he's he's losing his hearing um, lovely book i've been meaning to get the book that you mentioned for absolutely young so next time i'm up in shropshire i'll whiz up to you and i'll buy it in booker <laughs> buy it in booker Thank that's you. a good slogan isn't <laughs> buy it, it? Absolutely. <laughs> um, and henry what are you going to um shout about to customers daring not to buy it yes anyone who's going to take care of suggestion will also enjoy this it's serendipitous really it's i'm not even sure it's out yet i can't quite remember but i'm reading it at the moment it's called the way home by mark boyle and Mark wrote a great book called The Moneyless Man about his time where he decided to live without money, either making it or using it or spending it. 
and uh, Molotov Cocktails with Gandhi he wrote as well. And anyway, this is his book about living in the wilderness. <laughs> he separates himself entirely from the world of technology, by which he means anything to do, not just having a phone or computer or internet or television, but anything that is a sort of subsidiary of that. And he and his girlfriend at the time live in Ireland, where he lives on the west coast of Ireland, in a log cabin that they build. But it's not a meditation about the experience of that. It's also an examination of the whole process of how we came to need or think we need that crutch in our lives so much. And he refers to, you know, to Thoreau and Walden and Wendell Berry and all of that. And it, you know, it's so timely. And there are so many books of this ilk at the moment. But this is a standout for me, I think, because not only is he a great writer, it's not just a gimmick. He's not just saying, oh, I'm going to unplug for a few months and see how it goes. He studied business at university. He was a businessman in Bristol for years. But inside, something has been building up in him for years to get to this point. And he does it. And basically, he's saying, we can do it. And and we probably should, and look at us as a species. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. If it's not out yet, it's out any day, and uh, I recommend that to everyone as essential, life-saving reading. Blimey. <laughs> I, was, I was actually about to say something a bit ruder, but um, you, you can't. Life-saving reading. We'll we'll take that. And uh, okay. as I remember saying last time, so if you want to pre-order the book, you can pre-order any book from any indie. You don't need to go elsewhere online. Just phone up your indie or go to their website. That's been a wonderful selection of new reads. And every time we produce a new podcast, I'm blown over by the knowledge and the enthusiasm of our our lovely indie bookshops. Thank you both so much. And we better let you get back to your shops now, haven't we? So have a great week ahead. Thank you very much. Well, I won't carry from Booker and Henry from the book I've Wonderful. Uh, honestly, if you find yourself near Oswestry or Norwich, do go and see them. You'll probably end up with an armful of books, but that's no bad thing, is it? So... More book doctors next time. Wonder where we'll head to. Weren't they delightful? Um, I've been to both of their shops and they are truly wonderful. Right, so we're nearly at the end of the show, but before we say goodbye, let's get out and about. Bookgig.com is the bookseller's book events listing site with hundreds of author talks and interviews up and down the country. And Nigel is going to give us a couple of highlights. I am indeed. On 14th of April, and this is undoubtedly going to be the biggest book event of the year, Michelle Obama is at the O2 in London talking about the public and private experiences that have shaped her life and which informed her stunningly successful book Becoming. Ali Smith is in Nottingham talking about Spring, the latest in her seasonal quartet, and that's on Tuesday, the 23rd of April. And one last one up in Oban, up in the Highlands, on Friday, the 26th of April. Anne Cleves is talking about Wildfire, the latest in her Shetland series, which has been adapted so well for the Beeb. We like Anne a lot. Anne's a huge supporter of libraries and one of life's really decent people, which is more than can be said for some of her characters, of course. (laughs) So that's it for now. In our next podcast, we'll be talking about May and we'll have two new book doctors in the chair. We'll also have an amazing novelist turned memoirist. This week, of course, we had Damien, who's a memoirist turned novelist. Next month, we're going to have someone magnificent who's going the other way round. Thanks to the Book Doctors for their picks, and thanks also to the readers who sent in their questions. If you'd like to be one of our patients or talk to us about anything, then tweet us at at the bookseller or come to our Facebook page or just email us on podcast at thebookseller.com. We're available on iTunes, so please subscribe. And as you're probably doing right now, you can listen to us at thebookseller.com. And now, let's go back in time. This wonderful novel kept me reading into the small hours. 
Here is the start of the first chapter of The Confessions of Franny Langton, written and read by Sarah Collins. And that will end the fifth edition of the Bookseller Podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thank you for listening and happy reading. Chapter One My trial starts the way my life did. A squall of elbows and shoving and spit. From the prisoner's hold, they take me through the gallery, down the stairs, and past the table crawling with barristers and clerks. Around me a river of faces in flood, their mutters rising, blending with the lawyer's whispers. A noise that hums with all the spite of bees in a bush. Heads turn as I enter, every eye a skewer. I duck my head, parrot my boots, grip my hands to stop their awful trembling. It seems all of London is here, but then murder is the story this city likes best. All of them swollen into the same mood, all of them in a stir, about the sensation excited by these most ferocious murders. Those were the words of the morning chronicle, itself in the business of harvesting that very sensation, like an ink-black crop. I don't make a habit of reading what the broadsheets say about me, for newspapers are like a mirror I saw once in a fair near the Strand that stretched my reflection like a rack, gave me two heads so I almost didn't know myself. If you've ever had the misfortune to be written about, you know what I mean. But there are turnkeys at Newgate who read them at you for sport. Precious little you can do to get away. When they see I'm not moving, they shove me forward with the flats of their hands and I shiver despite the heat, fumble my way down the steps. Murderer. The word follows me. Murderer, the mulatta murderess.